Significant differences remain between Orthodox Jews and Messianic Jews. However, in recent times, there are growing initiatives within both groups that seek to help Christians understand how to properly relate to the Torah. Why are there a growing number of Orthodox Jews who are dedicated to helping Christians learn the Torah? And why would an Orthodox Jew write a book inviting Christians to keep the Sabbath? We'll be discussing those questions and more with David Neckerman, who is an Orthodox Jewish teacher and has authored a new book called Your Sabbath Invitation. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by Messiah Magazine, a free publication available in print or online at messiahmagazine.org. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. My name is Ryan. My name is Ruben. Hey, Ruben, uh, today's podcast uh, might be our most edgy episode yet. We're going to be discussing a topic that represents uh, really new territory for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the reality that there are Orthodox Jews who are helping Christians to understand and even observe the Torah uh, and specifically Shabbat. I mean, that's a new idea. I think some people will love me personally, uh, but others, I'm not sure if they'll, they'll they'll quite grasp that or be comfortable with it. Yeah, for sure. And this is this is definitely a topic that uh, needs to be navigated carefully. But the fact is, look, there's a growing movement of Christians who are hungry for the Torah. Uh, and specifically keeping the Sabbath. And in our last Messiah podcast episode, uh, we had a great discussion uh, with a Baptist pastor about that. And this week, we're going to be discussing this concept from a totally different angle with David Neckerman, who is an Orthodox Jew. Yeah, I mean, I'm really looking forward to this particular discussion. Uh, it's it's very personal to me. And there's a lot of differences between Orthodox Jews and those of us in Messianic Judaism, uh, you know, specifically and especially regarding Jesus. However, mm-hmm. for us at First Roots of uh, Zion, it's really positive that there's a growing number of Orthodox Jews um, that see the prophetic significance of helping Christians understand and appropriately apply the Torah. So you know, this is common ground. I think it's improving the relationships between traditional Jews, Christians, and Messianic Jews. It's, this is important work. Yeah. Yeah, Ruben, this is going to be a good conversation. I think our listeners are also going to really enjoy hearing David's story and especially about his experience as an Orthodox Jew at Oral Roberts University. So let's go ahead and begin our discussion with David Neckerman. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, Don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. All right, we are very happy to welcome David Neckerman. David, welcome to Messiah Podcast. What an honor to be with you guys today. Yeah, yeah. It's good to have you, David. You know, we've known each other for a while now. I think we first met at the Christians United for Israel Summit in Washington, D.C. That was that was five or six years ago that we, we first did that. And we've, uh, we've spent some good time together since then. 
So, uh, hey, I want to get started um, by folks getting to know you a bit. First, tell us a little bit of your background and and, and just kind of lead into why you got involved in Jewish-Christian relations. Uh, so, first eight years of my life, I was a secular New York Jew, okay. uh, fifth generation on one side, fourth generation on another side. Uh, my father was uh, working in Bar Park, a famous section yeah. in, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, probably the most Jewish section in, in New York. And a colleague of his wanted to be wanted him to be more observant in his Judaism, and felt the way to do that was through me, take me out from public school, and put me into a yeshiva, mm. uh, the most religious Orthodox yeshiva at the time, called Yeshiva of Brooklyn. Uh, so I went from uh, Friday night with Night Rider and Dukes of Hazard, Sunday yeah. morning with my grandfather eating bacon and eggs to becoming a uh, Orthodox uh, Jewish family. Uh, so it worked. Some of my family yeah. became Orthodox and I was one of two kids accepted from public school at that time. This is 1980. Uh, okay. So I'm pretty old and, uh, <laughs> and, and it worked. And, but in my, in my world, we're very insular as far as the greater uh, Gentile society and we're not encouraged to interface with the greater Gentile society. So the four walls of my yeshiva was the was my world, and I grew up within in, in that context. With the addition of not loving Christians at all. In fact, some of my friends, when we would come to a church on a on a specific block, they would cross the street. Some would spit in front of the church. Wow. And this is all because of the memory mm. of what Christianity did in the name of Jesus to the Jewish people. Mm. Uh, so for me to be in the sacred calling of Jewish Christian relations for the last 20 years is only God's hand mm. in my life. Yeah. Because I didn't grow up with an affinity for any Christian. Um, and on top of that, uh, I thought all of you were medieval Catholics. Mm. <laughs> all right. So I didn't learn about Martin Luther in my Talmudic classes. All right. So I didn't realize there are 40,000 different movements within Christendom. Uh, so all I know is, you know, so ha just fast forward, I go to Israel after I graduate from high school uh, to continue my studies. And then I came back to New York and I went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice to get a, a bachelor's in forensic psychology. I was inspired by Silence of the Lambs. I thought I was going to be the Jodie Foster. Just want to <laughs> clear that up in case people think I was going to be the Hannibal Lecter. Uh, and then I went to University of Pennsylvania, got a master's in social work, uh, Got the political bug, worked for yeah. City Council of New York during the Giuliani administration. I worked for the, both the Democrats and the Republicans. Hmm. I did about 2,000 constituent cases that went through city, state, and federal. So I had an opportunity to make people United States citizens. It was great. And then one day, I end up in, in a, a wedding, and a person who was my mentor during my college days when I established a Jewish student society on John Jay College, which predominantly is really not Jewish at all. There were only a handful of Jews on campus. But I was the president, the Jew, the vice president was a Jew. We had a Guyanese as the treasurer, and we had an African-American as the secretary. Uh, and everyone else in the club primary really was not Jewish. So I was te teaching Judaism to non-Jews on campus. Huh. Um, but I guess that helped me for yeah. my future my future calling in life in Jewish Christian relations. But my mentor mm -hmm. at the time uh, really helped me. So just like Christians have campus crusaders for Christ, so for Jews we have Hillel. Mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, to keep Jewish identity on campus. Uh, so we didn't have enough Jews uh, on campus at John Jay at the time, uh, but they were the ones who mentored me into leadership positions. And Rabbi Barb Kaplan from the Jewish Community Relations Council became a very uh, important person in my life. Very, he was He's very heavily involved in interfaith relations. And the Israeli consulate in New York was looking for somebody to help them for Campaign 2000. So at this wedding, I meet Rabbi Bob Kaplan. He says, would you be interested in working for the Israeli government? And I'm like, wow, I'm a New York Jew and I could work for the Israeli government? This is, wow, this is the biggest thing ever. I, I'm in. So I go through the security check and then in, in Labor Day weekend of 2000, I get hired at the Israeli consulate in New York. And then a few months afterwards, my first day on the job was the UN Millennium Summit. So it's Prime Minister Ehud Barak, the entire entourage coming wow. in. And remember, this is before Google and, yeah. you know, we were still faxing yeah. the news. I feel like <laughs> like my father saying I went through 10 inches of snow to get to <laughs> glory school. Glory days, baby. I, the yeah, glory yeah. days of faxing. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. So... Yeah. so <laughs> Uh, a few months later, unfortunately, the second Israeli-Palestinian conflict broke out, mm. and our jobs changed to try to get Israel's story in the media. Uh, my specific role was try to work with the Latino and African-American media, and uh, so I was working with the Deputy Consul General, Yossi Levnet. I was able to put him on Telemundo television to explain Israel's position at that particular point in time. A uh, Pastor Mandero from Bay Ridge Christian Center in Brooklyn, New York, saw my boss, saw what was happening to Israel, received the download from God to do a night to celebrate Israel in Spanish, huh. sends an invitation. My boss graciously accepts it. It was on a Friday evening. And then a few hours before this event, my boss calls me up and says, I have to go on TV. Can you go instead of me? It's only a half mile walking distance from your home on a friday evening so we're talking Arif shabbat yeah like yeah, okay. shabbat was coming close yeah, to, yeah. To so um in my mind two uh two monologues were happening at the same time number one uh do i value my job mm. or number two do i value my religious education that taught me from a very strict point of jewish law not to enter into a church so I confess in front of your listeners today that I valued my job and I said yes. And then I hung up the phone and then immediately called up my public rabbi, uh, Rabbi Dr. Gerald Meister of Blessed Memory. And I said, um, can I go to church? And he, a little shocked by the question, he says, can you provide some context? <laughs> and then I told him, he says, of course you can go. And I said, really? Yeah. He says, right now Israel is in a war. Uh, your commanding officer is the deputy consul general. He's asked you to go and represent the, uh, the government, so you have to go. And I said, thank you for the dispensation. I'll be going to church for the very first time in my life. <laughs> and so I prepared. I remember the, uh, the both uh, Sister Act 1 and Sister Act 2 Yeah. Um, because I only know Christians from a medieval Catholic point of view. I don't know of anything else. I didn't learn Martin Luther or the whole Protestant Reformation in my Talmud classes. So therefore, mm-hmm. you know, this is all strange to me. So just remembering, you know, Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. And yeah. what and apparently nun, nuns like to sing and dance and <laughs> dress funny and so on and so forth. And so I enter into this Pentecostal charismatic tongue service for Israel. And I was not prepared for my Twilight Zone moment. <laughs> I'm like people people are putting their hands up. 
and one person is falling on the floor. I'm looking around to see if anyone's calling 911, but apparently you put a blanket over the person. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on here? Right. Uh, someone help me. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know what I did that particular evening, but uh, lo and behold, Monday morning comes along and the ambassador calls me into his office, says, great job, you're now in charge of Christian affairs. Ah, so okay. I said, listen, uh, while I'm the token religious Jew here and the consulate doesn't make me the expert in Christendom. So if you can give me a few days, uh, <laughs> let me think about this. And I call up my rabbi and say, Rabbi, they want me to do the Christian portfolio. What should I do? Mm. And the rabbi says, of course you should do it. And I'm like, what is up with my rabbi? He allows me to go to church. <laughs> now he's telling me to take on the Christian portfolio. <laughs> and then my rabbi reveals to me that he was involved uh, for, for 25 years in Jewish-Christian relations, specifically in Jewish-Catholic relations. Mm. And uh, I said yes. That's really where it comes down to, is I said yes without any knowledge of what a Christian is, their theology. I only have a negative vibe with the whole thing. But if my rabbi is saying to do it, I'll do it. Mm. And then uh, to the credit of the Israeli council, they allowed me to get my Street Theology 101 uh, education about Christendom, and then come up with a way to engage. Now, in all honesty, I wanted to work with the Catholics because back then there was 32 years of official Jewish-Catholic uh, relationships between mm -hmm. the church and the synagogue. Um, I could not figure out the whole Protestant uh, way of, of doing the portfolio. Uh, for the mainline Protestant denominations, we were facing the challenge of boycott, divestment, and sanctions mm -hmm. within certain movements. So from an Israeli governmental point of view, that's not a symmetrical, equal relationship. I'm starting from the bottom. Then in the evangelical world, which was I was starting to learn, I'm trying to find out who is the Pope for evangelical Christianity, because that would help me. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll contact that <laughs> PR person, and then that will solve my, my issue of like, who represents evangelical Christianity? But again, I was naive. I didn't realize there's no Pope. Again, I was not educated. I was just saying, well, you Protestants, just say hello to the Catholic Pope and everything will be fine for me and make my job much easier. But no one's listening to me in this. Uh, but unfortunately, this, the Catholic Church was going through the sex scandal abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, Israel was not on the hierarchy of importance within New York, the Archdiocese in New York. Uh, so here I am, uh, the Presbyterians seem not to love me officially within their certain parts of their leadership and other movements as well. So I go back to this evangelical world, but I'm like praying really hard to find out who is the leader. And I rummage through my predecessor's box and I come up with a coffee table book. I thought this was the answer to prayer. The title of it was Billy Graham, ambassador to God. I was like, wow, you have an ambassador. This yeah. is amazing. I could call up Billy Graham and my problems are solved. Right. And then the voice of God nudges me inside and says, no, you got to go back to the uh, leadership from Bay Ridge Christian Center and meet with them. And so this is my Seinfeld moment. We meet at Mendy's restaurant in Grand Central Station <laughs> over a matzo ball soup and a knish and some pastrami, good pastrami sandwich. And then we talk about how we're going to conquer Jewish Christian relations and my, again, being very naive, thinking I can take on this whole entire thing. Um, and I said to them, listen, this began with prayer for me. Let's just do a day to pray for the peace of Israel in the Israeli consulate. 
And, and in March of 2002 was the first ever uh, Christian prayer for the priests of, of Israel. And that's where I met Bishop Robert Stearns, who was the main speaker. We became fast friends mm. afterwards, and I just felt an anointing in his life. I want to make this very clear. I didn't know what an anointing meant. Uh, people have said to me, I have an anointing. I thought my head and shoulders shampoo wasn't working at the time, and <laughs> my dandruff was coming to yeah. fruition on my shoulders. I just didn't know then. And like people were like rubbing oil on people's foreheads. This is all foreign for, yeah, for sure. Jews who don't have an education. Yeah. They're entering into this world that's very foreign. But uh, my thank God for the relationship with Bishop Robert Stearns, and he was quite helpful in directing me uh, in, in, in this sacred calling. So that's the beginnings of sure. how I went into it. And then later on, I moved to Israel and Rabbi Riskin, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, who was the chief rabbi of Afrat, heard about me in November of 2007, says, uh, he calls me up and he says, can you meet me at Ben Gurion airport tonight at midnight? And I'm like, okay, honey, I'll be home late. And, uh, <laughs> here I go. I'm going to Ben Gurion airport. Now, uh, Rabbi Riskin asks me, this is his very first question to me when I meet him at the airport, where did you learn? So I told him I went to Yeshiva of Brooklyn. He says, really, I also went there. So oh. here we are, two Brooklyn, New York Jews at Ben-Gurion Airport talking about how we're going to create the first Orthodox Jewish center dedicated to active dialogue and cooperation between Jews and Christians. Mm. And until, it, so basically for the last uh, 14 years, I've been working for the Ortar Stone Center for Jewish Christian Understanding and Cooperation, and I left at the beginning of September 1st, and now I'm beginning a new chapter in my life in Jewish Christian relations, and part of that chapter is finishing this book on your Sabbath invitation and promoting the idea for Shabbat for Christians and then getting heavily involved in Hebraic roots for Christians. So that's it in a nutshell. Got it. Yeah, it's it's incredible. What a what a repertoire. Ruben was laughing the entire time. So I'm like, everyone know. <laughs> no, no, no. I was trying not to laugh the entire time. <laughs> it's great. Uh, um, it's it's wonderful. This is my first time connecting with you. Obviously, you know Ryan has uh, had a relationship with you, and it, it's great to meet you. Um, when I first learned, when when Ryan kind of. Um, uh, pitched this idea when I first learned that you had a, a master's degree from Oral Roberts University, I was I was shocked. I was like, "Well, wait a minute. <laughs> why would someone even? Why would Northridge do even want to do that?" And and what came of it? So I'm just curious. Um, in in the story, you know, where does Oral Roberts University fit? And um, you know, why would you want to get a degree from an evangelical? Pentecostal University. So there are two divine agents in that story. Number one is Dr. Mark Rutland, mm. who was the former president of Oral Roberts University. And number two is Dr. Brad Young. Mm. So mm. Dr. Brad Young, because of, of what I do in Jewish Christian relations, Dr. Young, along with other theologians within the evangelical world, we created an, an institute for evangelical Orthodox Jewish relations on a theological level, and Brad was part of that initial uh, theological gathering, which created from the center the first positive statement from the Orthodox Jewish side as an institution representing the Orthodox world towards Christianity. And we wow. did that statement in 2010. There was another statement that made, was more famous afterwards. It's, it's the Orthodox rabbinical statement on Christianity 
to do our, our father's will, which made headlines in, in, um, in Christmas of 2015. But that's another story. But the first statement that came out from the Orthodox Jewish side as an institution was from us. And that was because of the dialogue that we had with uh, Dwight Pryor, a blessed memory, John Garr, obviously Brad Young. So Brad Young and I were friends from the beginning. He would invite me to all of Roberts University to teach in his classes, his master's classes on Midrash and a Jewish interpretation of scripture. Uh, Brad Young is very unique because Brad Young, A, learned under Dr. David Flusser, B, speaks fluent Hebrew, but more than just modern day Hebrew, understands biblical, Mishnaic Hebrew, Talmudic Hebrew, uh, I think he dreams in Hebrew, uh, Brad, <laughs> and he can quote a midrash in Hebrew in its original language. And so here's a person that's very unique in Christendom who went to a Hebrew university, got his PhD, came back to the States, opened up a Judaic Christian studies program at Ola Roberts University mm. and understands all the sensitivities. Mm. So that's divine agent number one is Brad Young. Divine agent number two, going back to Dr. Mark Rutland, uh, because I've come and teach at Oral Roberts University as a guest lecturer, uh, I met Mark on his first day when he was going to give his first convocation to the student body. Um, so he took over from uh, Robert Roberts back in the day. So I met him and we hit it off hmm. and he asked me to give the blessing for at his first convocation, which I did. And then he has a separate ministry called Global Servants, trying to get women out from the sex trafficking world. And every two years, he brings his leadership to Israel. So one day, he tells me he's coming to Israel. He wants me to come to the galley to give a Bible study. So I begin with the following nugget. I said, sometimes the shortest verse in the Bible could be the greatest lesson. I said, let's come from a Christian point of view using Christian scriptures uh, what is the shortest verse? And everyone shouts out, Jesus wept. And I said, well, if a Jew would be tackling this text, we would say, why is he weeping? For he should know what's going to happen at the end of this entire story. And I said, but if you look at the Greek word of Jesus wept versus the verses beforehand of wailing by the other people, wailing without any hope, um, it's a different Greek word. And I said, well, in this context, Jesus wept means he shed a tear because he allowed his humanity to come into the picture seeing his best friend who's laying there. The, so at the end, even though we know what the story is, is going to end up to be in this context, at the end, he allowed his humanity. Isn't that great for leadership hmm. when they're shepherding, that they allow their humanity and not be a robot when they're, when they're pastor. Yeah, it's a good point. Mm -hmm. So Mark comes to me afterwards and I, I deal with them Hebrew scriptures and I give it my Bible study. Mark comes to me afterwards and he says, hey, David, um, I was working like six weeks on what you just did in two minutes. And as a joke, I said, well, that's my entrance exam at Oral Roberts University. And he said, and then he just got very serious. He says, if your rabbi allows it, then I will make it happen. Huh. Wow. So the question was, okay, this is a great opportunity, but where do I start? How do I do this? And then in the midst of all this, my mentor in Jewish Christian relations passed away. Hmm. And uh, with the advice of Brad, he, Brad said, you need, don't uh, go for the masters in, in um, biblical literature, which is more of a theological track. And then if you decide to go for a PhD, this is the best way to do it. 
Um, and I prayed and I said, the reason why I want to go to Oral Roberts University is because the last conversation I had with my rabbi before he passed away was on the Holy Spirit. And I said, if we pay attention to spirit-filled Christians and how they use the Holy Spirit in their lives and, and how we think of the Holy Spirit in Judaism, there's a lot in common, but there's never been an official um, conference on the Holy Spirit between Orthodox Jews. I would see even conservative and reformed Jews on the Holy Spirit. This never happened. I said, wow, okay. I am not my rabbi. My rabbi spoke eight languages. He's much smarter than me. Uh, I'm just a simple servant of God. What can I contribute academically to to the sacred calling? And I said, okay, the Holy Spirit. So Oral Roberts has a center on the Holy Spirit. And I feel most comfortable in Jewish Christian relations with spirit-filled Christians. Hmm. Um, That's, you know, I say I dabble in Jewish Catholic relations and mainline Protestant relations, but where I'm most home with Hmm. is people who really are committed to God. Yes, there are theological differences. Okay. But it's not as, as, as divisive as we think it is. And there's a lot more in common. We just never really had the conversation. And that was the reason why I went to Oral Roberts University. So Dr. Mark Rutland and Brad Young. So it's, it has been, it was the best experience because it changed my entire way of operating the center afterwards. In, during and uh, attending Oral Roberts University and then serving as the executive director for the Center for Jewish Christian Understanding Cooperation. Wow. I mean, it's just, it, it just keeps getting better. Honestly, didn't want you to stop with, with what you were saying about Jesus wept. It's fascinating. Um, I'm curious just about your experience at Oral Roberts. Um, you know, what was it like for you as a, as an Orthodox Jew attending? Did, did people know? I don't know if you wore your kippah. I don't know. Yeah, I wore my kippah. I wore my yeah, kippah. So, yeah, you could not, curious. you could not say, you know, I was, I was incognito. I specifically right. went, everyone knew who I was and why I was there. And I was always, I, I was very graceful for the questions I was asking. I said, I'm here to learn. I'm not here just to take a test so I can pass. I'm here to mm-hmm. understand you so I can get the language to fast track this relationship. I believe in this. It's part of my calling. I will serve this until God takes me away from this, from the earth physically. Uh, but I need to understand you in the context of spiritual Christianity, what the Holy Spirit is, and you as an individual, what does your faith mean? Because in most Jewish Christian relational encounters in an organized fashion, you're going to bring your company line and I'm going to bring my company line. You have to best represent the institution, which is fine. But then the real, as you know, in any, any of these encounters, it, the real talks happen in between the sessions. That's when we get to know each other and really to understand each other's life. And mm-hmm. for me, it's always been about the relationship. And, and I want to know you. So I, one of the most f- fascinating discussions I had in class, and I, and I, I said, listen, I don't mean to offend anybody, but as Jews, we often ask questions, and I have to ask this question. Why is it that you are articulating certain certain lines that sounds like you are not saved? Hmm. Because my understanding is you're a Christian at a Christian university attending you know, a master's in biblical lit. You obviously are, from your perspective, saved, but the way you're speaking sounds like you're not sure. And it's very hard for me to digest this because when I go to regular regular Jewish Christian relational events, 
it you're the one saying then I'm not saved. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to understand you, and there and there I learned something amazing is about the the, the concept of discipleship within the evangelical church. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, anyone knows in Judaism, discipleship is something that's a life journey. It's not six weeks with a certificate. And uh, I got, uh, but that provided me an insight on, well, why is it that they're speaking this way? What's, and therefore understanding who they are. It's not, I'm not trying to use this as anything in an arsenal to go against Christianity. I'm trying to understand you, like, why are you speaking this way? Why? And so, I was like, you're saved. We, we have a lot of work to do. So can we start working on sanctification and holiness already? Interesting. And, and not think of yourselves as, you know, before salvation. So it, yeah. it helped me to understand that. Um, I've never had from any of the students, from any of the teachers, anyone trying to proselytize me. Because hmm. I think I made a very clear, you know, like, I think sometimes I just said, listen, I know everyone is praying for me in this classroom. Fine. Good. I'll pray for you too, and we're we're gonna con we're just gonna have this healthy dialogue. But it's the credit to All Roberts University that allowed me to come in and and be part of this because I am the first that I know of. I am the first Orthodox Jew ever to be accepted in a spiritual -filled university. Doesn't yeah. mean that there haven't been Jews accepted in Christian circles and Christian universities. Sure. I think my claim to fame. Uh, <laughs> is really a spirit-filled university on a master's yeah. level uh, and, and having the healthy dialogue. So to me, it was the best experience in my, uh, of my life. And I remember I went to the University of Pennsylvania and went to John Jay. Yeah. Interesting. Just a little tidbit there too about what you said earlier regarding um, that you feel more, most comfortable around, uh, if, if with, of Christendom, you feel most comfortable around sort of evangelical Protestants anyways. And I remember that that sort of sparked a memory there's a Times of Israel article that came out. I mean, this is maybe 2015, citing a Pew Research poll that said that Orthodox, U.S. Orthodox Jews actually have more things in common to evangelicals than to even other Jews, other other uh, forms of Judaism. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And there's something there's something definitely there. But I, it just jogged my memory. I thought that was really fascinating that you said that. It's very simple. We are committed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. We have a value system that we believe is rooted in the Bible. There might be some interpretive understanding of how what certain concepts apply into a faith community. But I, I would think about 90 to 95%, we pretty much are on the same platform with the mm -hmm. same way of advancing God's kingdom in the world. And that's how I look at it. There is a partnership. Wow. Unfortunately, for 2000 years, we've been in separate corners and we've never really had the dialogue. But I, right. I think just, I think the second greatest miracle in our lifetime is the rapprochement between Jews and Christians. Obviously for me, the first greatest miracle is the state of Israel. And that I, as a Jew, was able to return back after 2000 years and represent my family to live in a sacred land and to be a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But at the same time, I'm serving a calling mm -hmm. that is also part of biblical prophecy. A lot of Christians say to me, I can't be who I am as a Christian without the Jew. And I say, well, I can't be uh, who I am as a Jew without you, the Christian, because this is not a VIP club. This is, we're supposed to be a covenantal partnership in bringing God to the world. And so right. we have a That's lot of, right. we have a lot of catching up to do. 
We do. Yeah. And this is beautiful. The, the, the restoration that's happening is on so many levels uh, that you're describing is just, uh, it's an amazing thing. And, and, and yeah. it's good for us to kind of stop and say, wow, this is, this is a big deal. What's happening. You can get a free subscription to Messiah Magazine at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is where you'll get meaningful teaching on the roots of your faith, the biblical festivals, Israel, and most of all, you'll discover the Jewish Jesus through a Messianic Jewish perspective. Subscribe for free today at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. Earlier this year, David, you contacted me about a new uh, Bible translation you were promoting by Dr. Brad Young from Oral Roberts University. Um, and so, of course, you know, you studied under him there. And so his his new translation, I'm actually holding it here, and you, you had sent this to me earlier. It's called the Newer Testament. Um, and I have the reader's edition. But it, it emphasizes the authentic Hebrew heritage of the New Testament. So I want to just talk to you a little bit about that. You already kind of, uh, you know, gave us a little nugget there with the Jesus Wept line. But uh, what is it um, specifically about this Bible translation that made you want to promote it? Uh, n- number one, I would say that what I found in my 20 years of experience in engaging with Christians is that the Judaism of Jesus is quite a connector between Jews and Christians, even though Jews won't, uh, or Orthodox Jews don't believe in the divinity or messiahship of Jesus. But that doesn't take away from the Christian in understanding the Judaism of Jesus as a way to connect to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So one of these things is, is very popular, like Jesus divides, but also unifies the relationship in this way. So from a Christian point of view, I've always said to Christians, just as you believe in the 100% the divinity of Jesus, you also believe theologically the humanity of Jesus. And the humanity of Jesus grew up in what I believe is a one of the pharisaical uh, movements. So his home life was pretty much pharisaical. Now there were many pharisaical movements. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example and you, you probably guys you've discussed this in the uh, Gamiel is uh, Paul's rabbi, mm-hmm. right? And he's the one who is saving the believers in Jesus at that particular time against the Sadducees, right? Now, Paul, obviously, he's he's saying he's a Pharisee as well, but he's a zealot before his encounter of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just to tell you that Gamiel, I, didn't, I, I wouldn't think be approval, be approving what Paul was doing Uh, before his encounter with Jesus. Okay, so I just want to show you that there are different movements Mm -hmm. in pharisaical Judaism. We always say two Jews, three opinions. Uh, If a Jew would be left alone on an island, we'd be open two synagogues, the one we go to and the one we don't go to. (laughs) All right, so uh, if to think of Judaism as a monolith back in Jesus' time is is something that uh, one should just take that notion and put it to the side mm-hmm. and realize there's a diversity of Judaisms happening. So I, I, I tend to believe that Jesus grew up in a Pharisaical home. So Jesus kept the Sabbath, he kept the holidays, and, and, and he kept whatever the traditions were at that particular time in Judaism he re- was reared in. Um, so I don't think he did away with that mm-hmm. at all. And that, and now I wanna make it very clear, 
I'm not saying to Christians that you need to be Jews. I'm not saying to Christians you need to believe in all the tenets of Judaism for salvation. Salvation is your own thing at the end of the day. All right. And therefore, but in now that you've come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through your theological prism, through Jesus, as stated in the Gospel of John, don't throw away the Judaism of Jesus. Allow the Judaism of Jesus to enhance mm. your identity and also the, the covenantal partnership you have with your elder brother, namely the Jewish people. So I know this is, very, this is a very hard line to figure out how you're going to do this, and I don't want to get involved in, a, in an Acts 2 council uh, Acts 15 Council yeah, with you, part two. Yeah. Uh, but at the end, I, I want to make it very clear, when I'm writing the book, Your Sabbath Imitation, I'm not trying to advocate an Orthodox Jewish practice right. of Shabbat for Christians. I, um, I just believe that Isaiah 66.23, which is the inspirational verse for the book, is that Isaiah envisions everyone Every single person who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob celebrating the Sabbath. Well, Sabbath is a process. It's like, you know, it's like good coffee. It needs to, you know, you got to get the beans, you got to brew it, you got to process it. You finally have that good cup of coffee. At the end, to expect humanity all of a sudden have this eureka moment and they're all going to celebrate Sabbath, I think it's unfair because I believe I'm in the state of Israel. I believe with the establishment of the state of Israel, it, we're in redemptive times. I think we're in more of a fast track to redemptive times 73 years after the founding of the state of Israel. So how can you expect in one moment uh, humanity just to, to do Sabbath if they don't know what Sabbath is mm. and, and there's no teaching? So uh, I feel called in my next new chapter in life is to be that Hebraic soundboard from the Orthodox Jewish side not trying to compromise Christianity whatsoever, but just to add in a, a consideration, a reflection. Sabbath is important because it was the original intention of God when he created the world. And, and it was his last creative act on the seventh day. So the original intention was the last creative act. Isaiah begins with Sabbath. He ends with Sabbath. It's the bookends of this entire book. Uh, and you can't do Sabbath and uh, without a true heart to it, and also ignoring the marginalized of society. So I look at Isaiah as the most universal prophet out there, and as the prophet that we as Jews constantly use in our Haftarot. I know that you, you, you talk about you know the Torah portion of the week, and I know you deal with the Haftarah, but in Christian scriptures, you do see that Paul goes into the synagogue, and they're reading the Torah and the prophets. Well, the number one prophet book that we are reading in all our weeks of the Torah portion is the is the book of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. In fact, in book in, you know in the book of Deuteronomy, we have the seven constellations of, of of Isaiah's words to the Jewish people that we're reading. So Isaiah is a very big prophet. For me, Isaiah is the most is he is the universal prophet, and you see then at the end he is merited with a prophecy that the world will be celebrating the Sabbath. So. I hope that explains a little wow. bit of why I wrote the book and where I'm coming from. Yeah, David, I'm just just a little follow-up question there. Did, has anybody ever done anything like? I mean, has there ever been an Orthodox Jew who has done this kind of f- focused 
Um, I mean, to me, this is this book. I'm holding it in my hands here. It's like it's unprecedented. Am I correct in, in you that? You are correct. Yeah, you are correct because uh, uh, there is something. The elephant in the room from the Orthodox <laughs> Jewish side is, well, how can you uh, encourage a Gentile to keep the Sabbath? Uh, we know from a sense of Jewish law that if they keep the Sabbath, they are. This is the severity of the line. They're liable for death penalty. Yeah, I was going to ask you about. I mean, even in the Talmud, it says like you know, it seems to really discourage Gentiles. So like, yeah, I want to really hear your answer to that question. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I I know this is the elephant in the room on my side of the aisle. Okay. Yeah. On the Christian side of the aisle, there's a lot to talk about in the elephant of the room of the early church fathers, uh, that they were the ones. Uh, trying to get Sabbath out from Christianity. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so you know this from Augustine, from Origen, yep. uh, and there are many church fathers. And the reason why the church fathers are, are, asking, are asking the people not to do this is because the people are doing this. Yeah. Okay, that's right. the reason why they're writing yeah. on this subject matter is because, again, Christianity is, wasn't a monolith back then either. There were many different movements of Christendom. All right. So I think most people, you know, when 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 people come to faith in, in Christianity, they think that particular brand of Christianity was what was in existence at the time right. of Jesus. Uh, I, I think many just have to consider that there were different movements in Christendom and many of them were practicing the Sabbath in the early part of the church. And you constantly see it going through at least the fourth or fifth century because people are still writing about it in the early church fathers, okay? And I think this is a critical point to understand if you're gonna understand on the Jewish side of why the reaction the reaction that we're having. Because there was such an athema by the, or, by the leadership of the church against the Sabbath, I think what happens is you're seeing a reaction in Jewish law for anyone who wishes to then take on the Sabbath. Are you co-opting this? Mm from the Jewish from the Jewish people. So I think you have to understand the historical context of why, why mm. this the severity of what we're saying. That's number one. Number two, I want to make it very clear that the Talmud that you're quoting from from the Talmud tractate Beit yeah. page yeah. 16a uh, is very clear that it's an a uh, person who is um, uh, who's, who's an idol worshiper. What we call Ovdei Kachavim, Ovdei Avodazara. There's this farm worship, pagan worship. So again, back then, there, most of the people, most of the society back then are people from Rome. They're yeah. pagans. Sure. Christians would agree that Rome was pagan society. Okay? Yeah. So if you're talking about Sabbath as an affirmation of God the Creator, God only is the creator, and God is the only authority, meaning the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is the only redeemer, then you can't celebrate something that is acknowledging this oneness with whatever you're believing in your pagan tribe mentality and, and faith community. Does that make right. sense? Sure, yeah. You can't 100%. have a contradiction because, the, because Sabbath is about the affirmation of the one creator. Right. Okay. Right. So you can't have pagans incorporating that into something that is dedicated to expressing singular allegiance to the God of Israel. That just doesn't Correct. mix. It Got doesn't it. mix. Okay. Okay. So that's somewhere. Now, while if you're quoting that tractate, 
in Talmud, you can't forget. Now, the, what's interesting is I, I'm people not seeing this, but we're seeing each other in this podcast. And Ruben has this uh, parentheses, Ger Toshav. And his, uh, and so I was hoping you would notice. I noticed it. And it's great because it's a great seg- segue into the next tractate, which is uh, in, in the, uh, it's called Kritot on page 9a. Uh, and it says, a Ger Toshav. This is a, does a Ger Toshav have to keep the Sabbath or not? And it's a debate. So it's set, according to one opinion, one may do work for himself on the Shabbat as the same as a Jew on the intermediate days of festivals. So on Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, the first day and the last day are like almost Sabbath-like, except mm-hmm. for cooking. Um, but there's the intermediate days that you can't do certain types of work, but it's not as restrictive that it would be on the first and the last day of a festival. All right. So a resident alien is able, has to keep Shabbat on that level. And then Rabbi Akiva says, no, it's like the first that uh, 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 a Ger Toshav, a resident alien, has to keep the Shabbat on the level of a festival, on the like a first day, last day of a festival. And then there's a, then others saying no, they, they don't have they they can do whatever they want. All right, so I, he was a resident alien as someone who's renounced idolatry. Mm-hmm. All right, so from my point of view, so this is this is my my little insight. And again, Jews will argue with uh, with what I have to say, and I'm okay with that. That's the beauty of Judaism, that we can have a multiplicity yeah. of opinions. We don't have to get personal about that you don't agree with me. Right. Um, we are, we're not in this climate culture that because you disagree with me, I have to hate you. All right. right. So I want to make it clear. I don't view <laughs> Christianity for a Gentile as idolatrous at all. The, the Gentiles that I have met are very sincere about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we do see that there is a debate within the rabbis, whether a resident alien, that means someone living in the land of Israel, do they have to keep the Sabbath or not? And we see that there are, yes, they do. Just the question is on what level? So we have a couple of rabbis saying on what the level is. And then we have other rabbis saying, no, they're not obligated whatsoever. But again, that's the multiplicity of, of opinion. So right. why is it that if, again, my, my argument is, um, as long as I'm not promoting a, an Orthodox Jewish practice of Sabbath to the Gentile Christian world, and that we do see that people who are believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who want to explore this and consider this, why can't I be an agent to provide the education for it, for that person to make that decision? Mm-hmm. All right? Yeah. So you can't use a one-liner to discredit what I'm about to do. Or what I'm doing right now, all right? right. So that that for me, I I, I feel very comfortable, and 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 where I am in promoting this. And if it if some Jews don't like it, so be it. It's okay. A lot of Jews didn't like. I I started off in Jewish Christian relations twenty years ago. A lot of Jews didn't like that we started the first Orthodox Jewish Center uh, fourteen years ago. But that's part of, part of the pioneering work. Is sometimes uh, if you ever saw the movie Moneyball. Uh, one yep. of the last lines of Moneyball is you have to go through the the wall. You get a little bloody, mm-hmm. but that's it. You, that's what it means right. to be uh, faithful so to the calling. 
it, yeah. if everyone likes you, there's problems. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. It's okay to have uh, <laughs> a controversy on it, but right. I don't think yeah. I'm that controversial. Again, I'm not. I'm not telling Sabbath for Christians is salvific. Does you don't right. have if you come. You're going to have a faith in uh, Jesus, and you're having this Jesus moment, and you're having your conversion moment. Sabbath is not going to get you into the next world. What I'm saying is, once you are in this in this faith community, then if you do believe in Jesus, then the Judaism of Jesus is important. And I'm saying there is a way to celebrate the Sabbath that doesn't compromise your Christian identity. And at the same time, I don't feel I'm compromising Jewish law on the Orthodox Jewish side, in promoting a Sabbath lifestyle. So I'll give you an example. I'm not asking Christians to go ahead when they, uh, to not turn, I, I, you, if you want to make your coffee in the morning, go right ahead on Saturday morning. Make your coffee. It's okay. All right? Us Jews, we, on, Saturday, on Shabbat morning or Friday evening on Shabbat, we, we can't go ahead and percolate the coffee on Shabbat. We can't do that. So I'm not saying to Christians, you know, stop going to Starbucks uh, you know, for, for, for Shabbat. But, uh, I am saying, um, what is Shabbat? Why do you do Shabbat? Why is it important? It's not a vacation day. It's not a me day. It's not me going to the salon, doing a pedicure, pedicure and manicure. It's not going out to a ball game. Sabbath is really, if I would define it, it is soaking in the amplified presence of God. Mm-hmm. So we can reflect of what we've done for him in the kingdom work and what we're planning to do in the following week for him. Kingdom is a process. Shabbat helps with that process. This is about him, his appointed time, his wanting of you in that relationship. There's been a schedule appointment since the beginning of time. So if there's a way that I can be a divine agent to advocate for people to soak in that amplified presence, let, let the arrows fall where they may. I love it. Yeah. I honestly have a million and one questions for you. And I feel like I can, we could just talk for hours and hours. Um, But I do, I I like the segue here that we're moving into because really the main reason we brought you on was to discuss um, your Sabbath invitation. And I saw throughout the book, um, it really was speaking to me as someone who uh, I guess self-identifies as practicing Messianic Judaism as a, as a, um, as a Gentile. And I've struggled trying to figure out what Sabbath observance would look like for me and my family throughout the years. It was my introduction, believe it or not, to Messianic Judaism. It was a, a, a Sabbath night, uh, Arab Shabbat meal. And I'll never forget the experience of the, the peace and the love that permeated that household. And I, I knew from then on, I, I like this was part of my spiritual walk. Wherever this led, I didn't know what it was. This is where I, I wanted to go. And I wasn't really sure what that looked like for me. The obligation wasn't there. The 39 melachot that you're talking about, the, the prohibitions. And, you know, so I guess just to dig a little bit deeper into the book and this concept, and you've, you've touched on it, but what practical advice do you offer in a book for Gentiles who want to keep Shabbat and who are sensitive to not wanting to edge into Jewish space or Jewish identity. I certainly don't uh, profess that I'm Jewish or anything like this. And I know that there are other um, uh, rabbis who are discussing this topic on the Noahide, like um, Rabbi Chaim 
Clorfeni talks about this um, and how Gentiles can enter this space. But I'm just curious from your book, what would you say is some some practical advice maybe to get started with this or to, sure. to, to begin? So the last chapter of the book is the, is the chapter I deal with the practical re- recommendations for someone to consider. So I want to make it very clear. I'm not your rabbi to, for Christians to go ahead and adopt what I'm saying. I'm saying these are suggestions that were, were implemented through the Holy Spirit in a particular Jewish community that mm-hmm. gained widespread acceptance eventually. That's practiced today. So uh, the way I would think of Shabbat is actually we have to start during the week. Because for all the days lead up to Shabbat, I think that's the most important thing. Uh, Number one, I want people really to know that Shabbat is not a vacation day. It's not a day off from work. And if I would encourage anybody is is the Sabbath anticipation concept. Mm. How do I become a Sabbath anticipator? And the way I would encourage people to look at a Sabbath anticipation is what is your best meal beyond McDonald's drive through type of food that you're willing to prepare if you had a, a, a guest coming over, a prominent guest is coming over to your home, what meal would you uh, give? And each ethnic culture should bring out its best ethnic cuisine. Mm. So I'm not asking you to eat chalent or kefilte fish. A challenge for those people who don't know is a is a beef stew. I'm not asking to adopt Eastern European culinary delights, mm-hmm. which I grew up on. Right? Uh, I'm asking you to what is your best ethnic cuisine that you grew up with that you would go ahead and serve to a prominent guest in your home? Shabbat should be treated that way. So, a what is that meal? And b your shopping experience could be elevated to Sabbath on a weekday. Hmm. So when I go into that grocery store on Thursday and I'm putting all these ingredients for whatever fish you're going to do or whatever meat dish you're going to put together, a pasta dish, I declare this pasta, this barilla pasta as to be my (laughs) Sabbath meal. And what that does is it changes your whole perspective on how you look at Sabbath. And we do this in Judaism. We call it we call it Onik Shabbat. That's what we call Onik Shabbat. Most people think Onik Shabbat is the actual meal itself, which yes, that's part of it. But it's everything that was leading up to the meal, the dicing and the mincing and the boiling of the water. I'm declaring all these acts that I am honoring Shabbat and I'm saying Onik Shabbat. And I define what Onik Shabbat is in the book. But this this Shabbat pleasure that we're going to enjoy on Shabbat can already start at the grocery store. So imagine a cashier sees your face smiling and she, and she's saying, why are you smiling? I'm going to, and you say, I'm going to do Onik Shabbat. This is my whole, this is my Onik Shabbat cart right here. And she's going to say, what's that? Well, I'm preparing for the Sabbath. I'm preparing for the amplified presence of God. And we're going to soak in that amplified presence in fellowship in a meal with my family and friends and community are coming over. So it, it, I think what I, it's one of the suggestions I put into the book. I use the biblical text to show it. Uh, and that's sort of the encouragement I give to Christians that literally something that you're going 12, you know, 12, you know 1 a.m. in the morning to whatever grocery store you're going to, you can transform that into something that's sanctified. It's, it's a sanctified moment, even in a grocery yeah. store. Does that it's make beautiful. sense? Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. 
Hey, David, um, gosh, yeah, there's, this raises so many questions and, and I, I do want to, we'll, we'll tell people in just a, just a minute about how to get a hold of your book. Cause it's, it, it just gives a lot of, uh, good, thoughtful suggestions. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that, but I want to just ask you one more question, um, uh, here before we, we bring this to a close. You've been, as you've described, you've been involved in Jewish Christian relations, uh, an interfaith dialogue for, for a long time. So in your experience, what are some key ingredients uh, that promote healthy conversations and relationships between Christians and Jews? Well, what's this all about? Uh, so for me, this is all about the kingdom of God. At the end, it's all about relationship. Mm. And how do we do this together? That's where I, I start the, the, the theological premise. It's not because I'm saying it. It's because you see it in Scripture. Every single time there's a major moment that's happening, there's always the non-Jewish component there with the Jewish people. I even see this in Shabbat. I talk about it in, in your Sabbath invitation that there was this mixed multitude that went out with the Jewish people from Egypt. Uh, and that mixed multitude was comprised of royalty, uh, of Egyptian society, other slaves. They, you know, God did something in Egypt that was so powerful that people said, I want to I want to put my destiny with the Jewish people and with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they went out with the Jewish people. And in Exodus chapter 16, you see the nation rested on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Well, what nation? I thought the nation was happening after Sinai. No, there was a nation moment that happened before Sinai, and that nation was not, it's not, didn't say the children of Israel rested on the Sabbath. So if you look at the language in chapter 16, there's a lot of children of Israel, and there's sometimes there's the nation. Hmm. Well, in, in my humble revelational nugget, I say that nation comprises both of the mixed multitude and the children of Israel, and they got together on the Sabbath. They rested on the Sabbath. They celebrated Sabbath. Um, so you'll, you'll see this in Isaiah, the famous verse that you say, my house will be a house for prayer for all nations is in the context of, of pagans leaving their pagan roots behind, believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, there are even eunuchs who are part of that process the, and and Isaiah is saying, don't let them say that they're going to be forgotten. They're going to have a Yad Vashem. Mm -hmm. They're going to have an eternal memorial by God. This is not the Jewish people. These are non-Jews, pagans who left their pagan ways to believe. And how do I know that they're with God while well, they're doing the Sabbath? That's mm -hmm. that 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 I, I love the line that a lot of times people the verse I love the verse, but a lot of times it's taken out of context. It's in the context. It's about Sabbath observance mm -hmm. by pagans who who left. They're no longer pagans. They decided to hinge their destiny with the Jewish people and, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So all throughout Scripture, there's always this 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 partnership between Jews and non-Jews. For me. Um, I see, I see this particularly with a remnant within Christendom who decided that I'm with the Jewish people, I stand with the Jewish people, I put my destiny with the Jewish people. And that to me is unprecedented in Christendom. It's happening now. So it's a miracle. It's something that's godly. And I have to nurture that. So I think the important thing is when you're dealing in Jewish Christian relations, 
uh, I, I as a Jew shouldn't take 2,000 years of, of Christian organized anti-Semitism and put it on this individual Christian. Hmm. I think that's unfair to the individual Christian that A, might have just come to faith recently, B, just got this calling about, I'm going to stand with the Jewish people. Now, all of a sudden, I'm throwing this entire 2,000-year history between the church and the synagogue on this Christian who just, you know, like, wait a second, I didn't know about this whole history to begin with. Why are we starting with all this negative baggage? I, I just want to listen to God. And I think on the Jewish side, we have to allow the Christian to come into this calling without throwing everything at the Christian on this side. At the same time, I would hope the Christian will allow us to get through our post-traumatic syndrome exile. Mm. Uh, we did go through 2,000 years of exile. We were being killed and, and harmed in very bad ways in different countries. It takes us some time to run a country in 73 years, we do have post-traumatic syndrome. Mm -hmm. And we still have this thing that around the corner, there should be, there'll be a Holocaust. And we're still thinking in that context. Um, so while I think one of the things I found in Christian, in Christian circles, people who have been in this calling for quite some time expect a certain fast trackness for the Jewish mm -hmm. people to move into where they feel comfortable moving into. Right. Right. And I'm like, wait a second. You know, we live in memory. Jews live in collective memory. It's hard to put that collective memory to the side and trust you as the individual Christian who doesn't represent Christendom. You represent yourself or a particular community, a particular church and say, OK, I trust you 100 percent. We don't have a precedent for that. So this is part of a relationship. You're getting to know each other. And I think both of us have to learn patience and mystery and allowing the relationship to develop. So I, I can tell you in all honesty, when I first started off in Jewish Christian relations 20 years ago, I wanted a pre-packaged pre Christian. You have to fit my mold in order for me to have a relationship with you. And after 20 years, I just, I, I accept that this Christian who's coming to me is a miracle and I'm going to allow God to develop the relationship. I just have to be um, a coven a good covenantal partner that loves and trusts mm. but th that's maturity that takes a long time so I wasn't that way I was immature when I first started off yeah. so I think that's a, a, one of the key ingredients in Jewish Christian relations and at the end I think there's there there's certain theological conundrums between Jews and Christians that are never going to get answered and there's no reason to play scriptural ping pong in order to have the debate knowing full well, A, Christian understands from their own theology, they can't make anyone a Christian. That encounter has to happen to the individual. And at the same time, it's no, it shouldn't be a Jew's uh, position to then take Christianity and just say, well, we don't understand what you're doing. Our, you know, we're, we're the better religion. There's mm -hmm. certain, that's a, a condescending thing. There's a reason Christendom came on board. It's a mystery. It's led many people to this path, what we see today. I have to embrace that mystery, even though I don't live my life as a Christian, but people do. And, and, and for a Christian to go ahead and embrace the relationship, I can't come in with a condescending attitude, mm. yep. nor a willingness to explode 
I don't want to explode someone's faith. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I, I think those are the key ingredients, if that yeah, helps you, Ryan. Absolutely. I think it's a, a really timely conversation that we're having as well. You know, unbeknownst to you, the uh, Boaz Michael, the founder and director of First Roots of Zion, just got finished up a, in a, a tour throughout the United States. And one of his talking points was exactly this sensitivity between Christians and Jewish people. That is 2,000 years of, of sometimes not so great history. Um and we can't simply ignore that. We need to be both aware and sensitive to that. Um, and moreover, there's a um, an element of correcting that path uh, and restoring, um, you know, what you're pointing out in your book, which is, hey, Christians back then were practicing Judaism. There wasn't an idea, a monolithic idea of a different religion uh, in those early uh, early times. So uh, again, we could talk about this, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, forever. And and I'm so grateful that this conversation is happening. And, you know, I, I see really, you talked about earlier about the Holy Spirit moving, and I don't pro- profess to be an expert of the Holy Spirit, but I kind of see what's happening, uh, you know, in our conversations and what's happening in the, the Orthodox Jewish sphere as a move of the Holy Spirit to, to bring these two peoples together. And, you know, it's exciting for me as somewhere, I'm somewhere in between, <laughs> you know, as a Gentile. Um, but I see that there's a ton of common ground that we share, um, especially things like observing the Sabbath. So in closing, you know, I just wanted to, to uh, why don't you let our audience know how they can get a copy of your Sabbath invitation. I've I've gone through most of it, and I, I couldn't put it down. This was this book was fantastic. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for the high praise. Uh, it's people can pre-order it. Uh, Ruben and Ryan received the copy. They received the copy. Uh, what's uh, what we call a trial edition. It's really for people to get. I need feedback, mm-hmm. uh, and so it will be available in 2022. Hopefully, February of 2022. This originally started as a, uh, a 60 uh, page mini book. If you ever saw all Roberts' uh, Seed Faith book, I originally wanted something like that. And then um, last year, uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, I actually hi- hired my, my good friends uh, at Old Robert Uni- Old Roberts University, Pam and Samir Idris. And I said, listen, I'm getting such great feedback I think something is wrong. And we, so as a Jew, we're paranoid that it can't be this good. Yeah, it can't, it's gotta be <laughs> it can't be this wrong good. Yeah. And therefore, uh, I said, your task is to rake me through the coals to see what I am writing is resonating. And we rebuilt the book. So what you're seeing in front of you is a rebuilt book of 261 pages, mm. something like that, uh, where we, we try to go ahead for those people who have no knowledge of Hebrew, uh, to go through the entire way of layering of Hebraic thought to get to the nugget, to the revelational nugget. Yeah. That's that's so. It's not for people who understand Hebrew. It's really for people who have no background. That's mm-hmm. the the the, uh, the reason why we wrote it. Uh, but we can't ignore the Hebrew because this is where the revelation of the why of the Sabbath is coming from. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I point out right from the beginning is you can't translate Shabbat as Sabbath. Shabbat is Shabbat. It's a whole construct of many, many concepts that are coming together in that one word. And, and that English, there's no one English word equivalent 
to translate Shabbat. And I tried my best to say it's we're soaking in the amplified presence of God in the most transparent way. I mean, you know, once I go into that, what does that mean to soak in the amplified presence of God? Like, Mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of questions that have to be asked about that. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that we did enough of 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 a good job at this particular point in time where we layered it enough for someone who doesn't have any Hebraic roots background or doesn't even have Hebrew language background. That, and so I have to wait back for the feedback. So you receive literally before everybody else. All right. For the people who are going to <laughs> eventually review it this month. I'm just letting you know. So I really appreciate yeah. the opportunity. But you can go to yoursabbathinvitation.com to pre-order the book. And then the website is going to go through a major renovation in the, in the next six weeks. So whatever one sees right now is going to be changed drastically. Sure. To actually encompass the vision of the world celebrating the Sabbath. So the website is YourSabbathInvitation.com. And so when the book is available in 2022, obviously they'll be able to get it through there. Yeah, Good. exactly. Well, David, man, every time we are together, it's always fun and meaningful. And and I just appreciate you being with us today. You have, I, I think our audiences, our listeners are going to just, they're, they're, they're loving this. And, um, and so just appreciate you and, and thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. That's right. Yeah. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah. We're recording this on a Friday. So Shabbat is coming and I know you'll be in my hometown of Atlanta here uh, next week. So I'm looking forward to trying to connect with you. Excellent. Awesome. Thanks, David. Hey, Ruben, uh, David Neckerman is a fascinating guy. <laughs> it doesn't take, doesn't take long to uh, figure that out. And, uh, I, no. but like, I and hilarious and hilarious, <laughs> he's hilarious. all that. I, I mean, it. he's just, love yeah. It. Every time I'm with him, I just, it's always a good time. And, and so I think it's just great, uh, that there are Orthodox Jews, you know, he, to me, he represents something that's just going to be growing, you know, just like we mm-hmm. see ourselves at first fruit design as a proleptic. Uh, type organization we're, we're like preparing something now that that is you know preparing for a future reality and i think there's right. just going to be more david neckermans and he's he's like an early adopter if you will uh as as somebody who is is interested in helping christians understand the torah and shabbat better so anyway yeah. what were your what were your thoughts about what david had to say today yeah honestly i i feel the same way that what you're saying there and to me the book uh, I kind of alluded to it when we were talking, but the book to me was a was a big. Uh, I don't know if comfort's the right word, but you know, as a Gentile approaching uh, Judaism and the Jewish people and Israel and and what that means, I, I've always been concerned and always will be concerned about um, you know my role in that um, landscape and and mm-hmm. never wanting to step on toes or never wanting to do something that's disrespectful. And I felt his book to me, uh, the reason why I say it's comforting was because it, he's inviting us to partake and he's giving us a, a good sort of path to, to view it and for Christians to look at uh, the Sabbath. And to me, the Sabbath is very special. Um, and it was my introduction, like I said. So, uh, Hearing him, who is not a believer in Yeshua, talk about that and, and openly invite was incredible. I mean, really, it, mm-hmm. it means a lot to me. But what you know, what about you? Ooh, yeah, um, <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I just think it's 
you know, one of the good things I think about, you know, good Jewish Christian relations is that you don't water down the differences. You know, you're honest. Right. All right. We've got some, we've right. got some differences here, but you don't harp on those either. And you don't, you don't, you don't pound those. Um, but I think this is just another example of the incredible common ground. Um, as I think about, you know, our work at First Fruits and, and what we're seeking to advance and, you know, so much of what David said today and so much of what's in his book is really, you know, just just trying to emphasize, hey, we're not, and David really has clarity on the idea that, look, he's not trying to turn Christians into Jews. Right. He's not trying to turn Gentiles into Jews. He wants, I, I like, he made multiple references to diversity and ethnicity mm-hmm. and all those things. And if you've got the, you know, if you're, if you're in touch with the vision of the prophets, that's a really important point. Uh, but at the same time, he is, was very clear that there is, you know, this, this connection and this relationship to the Jewish people and to the Sabbath that does, that is not limited to uh, Jews. And so I just thought right. that, and that's, that's a, that's something that at First Fruits we're very passionate about. Um, and so I thought it was wonderful, but just one other area, I just really appreciated um, David's just his posture, his tone. I always have, and just even just some of the, some of the 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 way he described the ways he described his experience at Oral Roberts, and mm-hmm. just you know being upfront about who he is, wearing his kippa, letting people know who yeah. he is, but but going there as a learner, you know, going there as somebody who's saying, look, I want to understand from the insiders, and so I have a lot of respect for that, um, yeah. and and I think that that is something that. Um, is is important to advancing the kingdom is that look you know who you are but you you really try to learn from others and 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 respect them where they are and expressing the the diversity of traditions and approaches to to serving uh, to serving Hashem so I thought that was uh, yeah. that was really really good stuff but a good conversation wasn't it absolutely yes absolutely yeah yeah well Ruben you know. Uh, as we we've, we've said, I want to just kind of wrap this up. God is is doing something great in our time. You know, Christians are are really getting encouragement to have a proper relationship to the Torah from multiple directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are you know messianic groups like us at First Fruit Design uh, that are encouraging Christians to have a healthy understanding and application of the Torah through things like Torah Club and and other resources and approaches that we have. And then as we see today, there's a growing number of Orthodox Jewish groups who are encouraging Christians to engage the Torah and Judaism more deeply. And I I just think this is prophetic. Um, As we've already said, there is still, we get it, there's disagreement about Jesus between Messianic Jews and Orthodox Jews, but the fact that we can acknowledge common ground, big common ground, in encouraging the spread of Torah, this this is a positive step. I mean, yeah, I'm feeling evangelical, man. I'm feeling, you know. I know. (laughs) We got a shout out from the rooftops. It was wonderful. Good stuff. Hey, so everyone, uh, I'm glad you could be with us. Thanks for joining us on Messiah Podcast today. Shalom to you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Ryan Lambert, along with Ruben Ramos. 
Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. And the show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you're interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to torahclub.org. Until next time, shalom. Like the waters cover the sea